Hey podcast listeners, this is Todd Finley, the founder of HBCU grad. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Sonia Okoli about how she navigated going to three different HBCUs and how others can navigate through the whole HBCU process and save money as well. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Welcome to episode 18 of the HBCU Audio Experience. I am here with Dr. Okoli. Dr. Okoli, thanks for being with us. Can you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Wow. I don't know why that question always stumps me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am Dr. Sonia Schuler Okoli. I am currently um, working as an adjunct professor in the Department of Leadership Studies at Beulah Heights University. But prior to that, I am a former Dean of Academics with the Small Community College here in Georgia. And I um, have a background in P16 education, which basically means that I keep my foot planted, my feet planted, I should say, in both K-12 and higher education. Um, I'm affectionately known as the college doc because I have a platform that's all about getting minority families strategic about the road to college so they can graduate degreed and debt free (laughs) um, and in a promising career. And that's pretty much me. We we need that. We need that a lot. And you know, sometimes I, I see where we've gotten to and I see how polished we are. Tell me a little bit about who you were as a child. Oh, wow. Not polished. <laughs> <laughs> I am a self-proclaimed uh, old school. Uh, how can I put this nicely? Um, <laughs> I like to consider myself as like a refined hood chick. Like when... Oh, you know, like I started from the bottom. Now we here. Like that's a perfect example of me. I grew up in uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, which everybody knows about Charleston. North Charleston is just a suburb, but the same things. Um, it's an urban environment. Um, a lot of drugs and crime, and a lot of uh, racial tensions. Um, because of course, everybody knows Charleston is you know one of the places where um, slavery was you know very much um, the road to slavery through the continental United States. Um, But I grew up in an urban environment, um, just, you know, in the hood. And, you know, I grew up a product of the system. My mom um, has a GED and she, you know, we we grew up on welfare to say the least. Um, I grew up in a house with my grandparents who were the working class anchors of my family Uh, My grandfather retired from the Naval Shipyard in Charleston, and my grandmother was a retired uh, CNA. Um, So the work ethic part of me, um, you know, was something that I got from my grandparents. And um, yeah, I mean, as far as growing up, uh, school wasn't something that was pushed down my throat. I mean, I didn't have, I don't even remember a book that I owned in my house Um, Not even an encyclopedia (laughs) um, or a dictionary. And it's funny because it wasn't until now talking to you all that I even realized that I was lacking (laughs) in that area. Um, But it makes sense now. Um, But yeah, so 
I, I didn't have a lot of access. I didn't have a lot of opportunities. I was a low performer um, at best. Um, and yeah, my parents just really didn't have a lot of, my mom, single parent, didn't have a lot of information about not even just college, but what her role was in my schooling process. And that's just key. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do because, you know, college decisions are family decisions and it takes a village and the village doesn't have to be all degreed up people, but it definitely needs to be people who understand the process of, you know, what you need to do to be successful academically. Now, now I've been to Charleston once and I was blown away by how, how good the seafood was. You're delicious. <laughs> Growing up, did you eat a lot of seafood in Charleston? Oh my God, yes. Every Friday, my grandfather was a fisher, a fisherman, or every now and then he would go fishing, but we would have red rice and fish, like fried fish every Friday. Like so much so that I like cringe at fish now. <laughs> but crab cracks were the thing. I'm not a crab eater. My sister slash cousin, she's all things crab cracks. So okay. I would go to the crab cracks, but I didn't really eat crab. But yeah. And and I was totally different. My father is allergic to all seafood. So oh. I didn't eat any seafood growing up. So mm. when I got out of the house, I started to eat almost everything. <laughs> so I didn't know if, if be, since I wasn't exposed to seafood that the Charleston seafood was so good. or. Right. Well, no, it had been good regardless. We've okay. I've been told that some of the best seafood comes from there. I mean, come on, I think about Bubba Gump's from uh, Forrest Gump. That's in Charleston. <laughs> Do you know that's that's where I went? That was the first place oh, I had. Yes, I there had you go. Seafood in Charleston, and then the view was Bubba great Gump. right there, right there on the ocean. There it was, it was beautiful. Yes, that's the one thing I do miss about home versus being in uh, GA. The seafood is not as fresh. Do you go home often? I don't. I probably go home once a year and sadly it's usually for somebody's funeral. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So after growing up, uh, what was your next move after, uh, after high school? High school was so difficult and I didn't really, you know, capture the essence of my high school journey, but I graduated high school barely. Um, I jokingly tell my students all the time, um, I was just at Morehouse this summer um, lecturing uh, with their bridge program with some high school seniors. And I was telling them how I had an asterisk next to my name. So depending on what program you got, you might have thought that I never graduated high school uh, because I, I mean, I graduated with a two point something GPA. Um, I could not pass the basic skills assessment because I was weak in math. And I realized now that my weakness came in my own mindset about it, which we hear so often and it sounds cliche, but it's real. I just couldn't get over my math hump. But anyway, um, my sister cousin, uh, she was great at that. And so she took the time to help me with that. And so high school was just me just doing high school. I literally went to school showed up to classes, kind of just did whatever. And I didn't have any, I didn't have any goals. I had no visions. I didn't know what I wanted to do or did I even needed to know what I needed to do. And I would hear people say, you you don't really need to know that right now. You got your whole life to figure it out. And now being on this side 
of education and being a parent that couldn't be further from the truth right and so right. i literally education saved my life literally um i don't know how what i do know it was prayer but i applied to several colleges because I didn't know that, hey, lady, you can't just be applying to colleges with this 2.12 GPA, <laughs> you know, and this 800 at best on the SAT. But I did because I was ambitious from a very young. I knew I wanted to change my situation. I knew that. I knew I wanted to be better than my environment. And I knew from watching a different world in the Cosby show and 90210 that college is a part of that journey. Right. And so. Um, I applied to a lot of the schools. I only got accepted to one, and that was Morris Brown College. So I packed up my little bags um, with my mom and my big brother, and I was a student at Morris Brown College um, until, you know, things happened. Everybody knows the story of Morris Brown, but I was one of those students that was, you know, I won't say blessed or fortunate, but I was fortunate because I didn't have, you know, we didn't have a lot of options. And so I was one of the students that was an option landed at my front door. And okay. I had an opportunity to go to Fisk University. I don't even know to this day how this representative, who now is a Sora, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta, but she was a Sora. I wasn't a Delta at the time, but she reached out. And I remember being in my living rooms. I was working at a check cash in place because I had went home. I went home, let me back up. I went home. Um, when all that stuff happened, they kind of gave us options. So there were students who already started applying to graduate schools and students who kind of already knew what they wanted to do. I was in Atlanta partying at the time, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. all a blur, but I went home and I tried to regroup and because I couldn't afford to stay here. I couldn't afford to be an out-of-state student at Georgia State because that's expensive, right? And right. so... um. I got a phone call from someone at Fisk and they said, uh, we got your information. We heard about what happened and we're reaching out to certain students and we want to know if you are interested in coming to our university to, comp to complete your studies. And if you can, we need you to be here by the end of the month. <laughs> so 30 days later, I packed up my bags and I was at Fisk University where I finished my degree in sociology and that was an to say it was an amazing experience would be an understatement it was a godly experience right. to say the least now to back up a little bit the people that don't know what happened at Morris Brown what what happened so Morris Brown College um it was maybe 2000 2001 uh, lost their accreditation um, due to some uh, fiscal mismanagement. Um, and with that, there were students that were still there that needed to graduate. Um, and so um, when an institution loses their accreditation, those degrees pretty much become, um, I guess, worthless to say the least. Um, because a college has to be accredited in order to award and confer degrees. And so during that time, it was literally like um, just a really big deal for students who were either either juniors or seniors, which I was in that group, uh, because you had to make a decision to pretty much try to get like 60 credit hours in like a year, <laughs> you know, um, and but typically 
you get about 15 per semester. So you're doubling your time and you're fast tracking. So students were going to school all day on the weekends. It was crazy. But um, my family and I, my big brother, um, who's a graduate of the Citadel, um, he just said, you know what, just come home, let's regroup because this could be something that impacts you for the rest of your life. So yes, you may be able to earn that degree, but losing accreditation is such a big deal that it has a stain that could possibly be damaging to what you want to do. And at the time I thought I want, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. So law school was kind of in my mind. And so um, I went home and I regrouped. So that's, so I had to find somewhere else to go. And so Fisk found me. Right. So when, when a school loses their accreditation, that you can't get financial aid either, can you? You cannot get financial aid. And so what Morris Brown did at the time, I believe, is they allowed students to, they pretty much, I guess, allowed them to finish their degree without the financial aid. But at that time, when you lose the accreditation, it's not like, a, you know, the gavel drops and now automatically, you know, as of tomorrow, you can't, you know, award any financial aid. It was a process. So I do believe they had a year to get everyone out so they can utilize their financial aid. And after that year, then no one else could utilize it, which is why it was a mad dash to pick up that year or two in a year before they were 100 um, percent at a loss for financial aid. Okay. Okay. That's and of course, most students at HBCUs, uh, there's like an astonishing figure of like 90% or so, you know, they utilize financial aid as a primary source of funding. Right. Right. Okay. Well, good thing Fisk found you and, and you found yeah. Fisk as well. Mm-hmm. And Fisk is such a small school, but has a, a really good reputation that everybody yes. knows. Yes. Oh my God. There were, when I was at Fisk, which was in 2002, there were a total of maybe 800 students. <laughs> um, and you compare that to, let's say, Howard, who has like 10,000 students, or Clark that has about 5,000 students, or Morehouse that has 2,800 students. Mm-hmm. So it was a small number of students. And the, the, the irony behind Fisk is that Fisk is a legacy school for the most part. Most of the students that attend Fisk have some type of connection. Their grandparent, daddy, mama, somebody went there. Oh. And a lot of my classmates were like super duper like from prominent families. Like I remember two or three individuals that I that were my classmates that had come there from boarding school. Wow. So if you're familiar with a boarding school, you already know that just not any old body goes to a boarding school, right? Uh-huh. And so Fisk is is really super prestigious in the African American community. And you're right, it has a really good reputation. And so that's why I said my experience was godly because I went from an institution that had lost a very thriving reputation for being a school that target that excuse me that allowed opportunities for students like me who wouldn't have gotten into any other type of institutions the ability to get a degree but I had to leave that institution to go to a, another institution that's known for providing a stellar opportunity so I mean I would have never gotten into Fisk out of high school and so to be able to to say that I'm an alum of Fisk by way of Morris Brown is something that I do not take lightly and I know that has paved the way 
for the success that I have in the other schools that I've been able to go to since leaving Fisk. Right. So when it comes to paraphernalia, do you own Morris Brown and <laughs> Fisk stuff or just Fisk stuff? Where are we at? That's a loaded question. I'm going to give you the politically correct answer. Yes, I own both. Okay. <laughs> but on my now, but I'm going to be very transparent and honest. Um, when I left there, it was just it was I almost felt like those of us that had to leave like left like a thief in the night and so like I don't have any like I don't have any of like my Morris Brown convocation stuff you know when I was a freshman because I felt like we left but um and of course of course I got the Fisk and I assimilated to the culture so you know uh, on my car if you see me driving down 285 in Atlanta it does say alumni of Fisk University okay okay that, that's fair that's fair. Now, what was the so with it being such a small school at this? What was the social life like? The social life was, I mean, it was cool. I mean, of course, you know, Greek life was thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not have a thriving athletic department. Fisk has a basketball team. And so that was a big deal, basketball season. But we are literally steps away from Meharry and a mile down the road from Tennessee State. And so most of us spent our time between Tennessee State and probably Vanderbilt. Okay. Um, so it was it was very intimate, very... Um, I would say almost like family-like. I mean, yes, there still were cliques and pods of people and groups, depending on your affiliations, right, mm-hmm. of clubs and organizations. But for the most part, everybody within that class, like all the seniors knew each other, all the juniors knew each other. And we, we kind of stuck together. Okay. Um, because we had to, because, you know, TSU was down the street and they was giving us the business. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> TSU, they don't play about TSU now. Okay? Definitely. Definitely. Now, before you got to Fisk, had you improved your studying, your grade point average while you were at Morris Brown? Definitely. So that's the the coming of age story for me. I did a 360 academically when I got to college because of all those things that I now know students need to have and that we need to nurture in them. I was very clear about my goal, right? I was very, um, strategic about how I spent my time. I developed good study skills. I had relationships with faculty members who took me under their wing and they showed how much they cared about me and being successful. You know, they were, they, they showed me that they felt accountable and, and that I should feel accountable for my own success. So when I got to Fisk, um, it was easy. It was easier. The thing about Morris Brown was the social life being in the AUC is everything you see on TV. (laughs) You know, you look at school days and a different world, like in the AUC, like all of us were kind of connected. Like, yeah, we had our little, you know, healthy rivalries. If you go to Morris Brown or Fizz, I mean, Morris Brown or Clark or Morehouse or Spelman, but the reality was we were so close that there was always something to do. We were always on one another's yards or campuses or cafeterias. So going to Fisk was very much a culture change because Fisk felt like a boarding school. <laughs> like we had curfew, the gates were locked, you know, it's small, wow. it's enclosed, you know, there were no gates around Morris Brown, <laughs> right. you know, right. um, 
so yeah, it was it was a culture shock, um, to say the least. Okay. Why did you study sociology? Um, sociology. So I originally wanted to do uh law, but of course I realized that uh yeah, not really um up to snub. <laughs> in that area so with sociology i found a way in taking the classes because as of course a freshman and you're taking your electives you have to take psych and social psychology and sociology and so i fell in love with the study of cultures and people and you know social systems and you know race and class and you know family and the irony was i wanted to major i wanted to do law for that same reason be a family lawyer because I had a lot of family challenges growing up and so sociology allowed me to um, bridge those things together in a healthy way okay okay you know academically made sense right that that makes a lot of sense that made a lot of sense so after graduating from Fisk what was your next step so after graduating from Fisk, I was a what did I do? A caseworker for DFAS. <laughs> so I took up a semester or so to just work. Um, like I said, at DFAS, I was a professional in the workplace, um, doing like family uh, planning and GED courses and just helping in that area. Um, and then shortly after that, I applied to graduate school at Tennessee State. And I majored in administration um, and supervision for education. And so my thought process there at the time was, well, maybe I will become a teacher (laughs) Mm -hmm. and do some teaching things. But I knew I wanted to do, if I did education, I knew I wanted to be a part of policies and politics because that's something that of course, was attractive to the lawyer in me, the wannabe lawyer in me. <laughs> right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So after, so you got your master's at Tennessee State. Mm-hmm. And from there, where did you go? So from there, I worked for a little while longer, and then I ended up moving back to Atlanta Um, where I had a job opportunity here to work at a college. Um, But before that, I was interested in PhD programs. So I was looking at the University of Georgia, Clark Atlanta, Mercer, um, and I think it was West Georgia. So I came back to Atlanta and started just working and building up my my knowledge of um, the educational system. So I came out of the social um, system or, you know, casework, and I began working in education, and I started off as a financial aid counselor um, okay. at a career college, and I kind of learned the ropes of financial aid, which ironically was more policy, more politics, Uh, more bureaucracy, um, and really understanding how things work in financial aid. And I was able to tap into my my desire to to help families. 
a lot of my role was educating and informing parents and students about the whole financial aid process. Um, and till, until it was time for me to get accepted into a graduate program for my doctoral studies, which it ended up being Clark Atlanta University. Okay. So you went to three different HBCUs. Yes, three. So you're overqualified qual- <laughs> to talk about HBCUs. <laughs> oh, over and, and, and three different tiers of HBCUs, you know, right? Three you're different right. populations, all of that. You're right. Which one would you say is the best one? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to say Fisk because Fisk helped me to even be in a position to think about a wonderful institution like Clark Atlanta University. So I'll do that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So what was your dissertation in or dissertation about? So my dissertation was about the influence of youth culture and, and, um, excuse me, youth culture and experiences of African-American students who persist to graduate from college. So basically, it was a study, it was a critical race, uh, let me back up, it was a study about how African American students are faced with a social media um, society and one that um, promotes and celebrates not getting college degrees. And if that impacts their experience in college, their lens in attending, and their desire to complete college and graduate. And so I pretty much did a study about, you know, how the experience of an African-American student at college leading up to them even getting into college, you know, is important in shaping how well they do once they get there. Um, And so social media was on the rise at that time because I started my research in 2012. And so uh, that's when we were getting the Twitters and stuff like that. Like it wasn't what it was today, but it definitely was catching on. Um, And that was kind of, you know, around the time where people started talking about the injustices in our legal system and our policing of African-American boys, especially, and the innocence that was being robbed of them. That's when the Trayvon Martin um, started in the Black Lives Matter movements emerged. And so doing my research at that time was very pivotal to me, but even to those students, because I learned a lot about, I had a bias actually going in, and I probably had already had, you know, what I thought they were going to say or what I thought they were going to feel given all the things that were going on. But through the research I uncovered or it was uncovered that those things really don't impact their decision-making. And for many of them, they were just like baby Sonia who really wanted the college degree to change their life. Right. And so what people were saying about, you know, you know, the whole rap culture of, you know, you don't need a degree to become a millionaire, which is true. You don't. Right. Or there's not value in spending four years in college. It's true. It depends on what your major is, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
how all those things, you know, impacted their mindset, you know, and that was what my study was basically on. Right. And I think it's, I think in college and for college students in general, uh, a lot of those assumptions can be made. But when you start yeah. talking about the Black diaspora, and you start mm-hmm. talking about HBCUs, it's mm-hmm. something totally different. Yes. While I believe that you can make it without a degree, and I also believe that college is too expensive for a lot of people, and I know mm-hmm. you have some different things that can, you know, that we're going to talk talk to uh, talk about later in the conversation. I still believe that the sanctuary that is a HBCU serves so many African Americans, especially from my perspective, from African American as an African American male. It serves us in a way that we can't find anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. We can't take a trip to Europe and mm-hmm. discover ourselves. We can't Absolutely. do certain things exactly. that other races can do. So going Absolutely. to an HBCU and you get a chance to be around people that are just like you, but totally different than you. Absolutely. That, <laughs> yes. you know, and oftentimes where we're from, we're the smartest people. And then we get to college and like, wow, it's thousands of other young black males that are just as smart as thousands of other mm-hmm. black women that can party and then study and then have a good <laughs> time to still be, you know, decent people. I think HBCUs present something different. So I understand Definitely. their argument, but mm-hmm. it's a little flawed when you look at it from the, from an African. Definitely. Right? Definitely. And in the thing about it is I, I showed my kids, my kids, they're going to kill me. My young men who were scholars at Morehouse this summer, I showed them a clip from Blackish. I don't know if you saw that episode where Junior visited Howard. In that, Junior talks about everything you just said. Mind you, he's from a privileged background. His mom is a doctor, not just any doctor, right? She is an anesthesiologist. That's like head honcho doctors, right? And his dad went to Howard, but his mom went to Brown. So he's in a house where it's a PWI versus HBCU. And he goes to Howard and he is talking about how he had never in his life, you know, experienced so many different types of black people. You got black people who are Republicans. You have black people who are, you know, um, rich, poor. You have black people who are, you know, from various places, suburbs, the hood, you know, they're rich, you know, they're celebrity kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but he talked about all of that and how him being a privileged kid still spoke to the essence of him wanting to get to the root of who he was as a young black student and how he felt like only a place like Howard could do that for him. And so when I showed that to my young men, they even had a different level of appreciation for what an HBCU can provide. Like you said, specifically a young male of color, because for a lot of them, they're expected to know a lot of things that they don't know. You know, they get a lot of corrective you know, a dialogue, pull up your pants, don't say this, don't do that. But there's not a lot, uh, not, not a lot enough of nurturing the why and the how 
and having a sense of pride about being a young black man in America and having a sense of, you know, building your self-esteem that you are smart enough, you are good enough, you do matter, you are loved and say what you want to say. I always tell parents and students that what is the best college has nothing to do with rankings or how many white students go there, how much money is in their endowment fund. It has everything to do with what's going to be the best for your son or daughter and for them being the best individual that they can be, period. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, with that being said, will your children have to go to an HBCU? It is a required. <laughs> it's funny because my husband, uh, UC Davis, uh, University of okay. California um, at Davis, uh, but he did his doctorate of physical therapy at Howard University. So he has a okay. lot of love for Howard and um for me, of course, I'm HBCU. I finished PWI with a post-doc uh, at University of Georgia, where I did a lot of my professional experiences. But as far as the HBCU experience, honestly, and this is real talk, <laughs> I want my children to go where they're going to find the most value for who they want to be when they grow up. We do a lot in our house because uh, my husband was a history major. And he's Nigerian American. (laughs) So they get the power to the people all day long. And mommy talks a lot about that. Um, But I can already see individually who's going to go where. I have one daughter who I already know. I'm probably have to peel her off of a film on our Howard's campus. And then I have another daughter who, like, on paper, she's, like, literally a conservative Republican. (laughs) So it could go either way. Um, But I definitely want them to experience the HBCU life. Um, because it's important that they understand this is for us and people fought and died for us to be in this safe environment and yeah I would want them to go for sure and I think that's extremely important that as a parent you're already leaning into who they are that's right yes because one of them is not gonna survive honey she will not (laughs) They Catholic school kids. One of them is not gonna survive. The other one, she will she wouldn't survive at a PWI because right. she already thinks about she tells me all the time, mommy, now that statement sounded a little racist and she's five. She already can mm-hmm. identify when something sounds like it's for or against somebody based on the color of your skin. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then my and son, I... you know, he probably gonna go wherever his daddy tells him to go because he's a Okay. Okay. And and I think I was I was almost predestined. I think I think it was fourth or fifth grade. I told the librarian that she was racist, <laughs> and, yeah, and they made my parents come into school. And my parents took my side and said he wouldn't there say that if, if it wasn't the truth. That a right? That's right. I'm that parent too. High five, mom and dad. Take up for your kids, okay? <laughs> right, right. So, why did you become a parent education coach? Right, I got literally physically sick to my stomach hearing countless parents of color say I wish we had heard this years ago I wish we had known this years ago why didn't somebody like the list goes on and on and I was sitting at the University of Georgia at the time and the University of Georgia is a PWI right and it's in the south so say no more and so um 
when I would encounter students of color, be it Latino X, be it African-American, you know, the, the, the sentiment was the same. They felt ill-prepared for where they were and not academically because it goes beyond your kid just being smart, but just having some of the well-withdrawal and the resources um, that they needed to survive, they just didn't know. And so that on top of being at DeVry University early in my career, where, you know, I saw a lot of kids whose parents told them, hey, it's this or nothing. So working in my research area of focus, where I was just working with community college students um, who were like in the community colleges, who were like in the top 10% of their graduating class, who just mm-hmm. didn't even think that they could even apply to Howard or Morehouse or Spelman. And so it just, I just became like literally physically sick. It was sickening to me. I would come home and complain to my husband all the time. Like, why are these community colleges becoming baby HBCUs? Like no disrespect, but there are too many children here, too many students here who do not belong here. And when I'm talking to them, they're telling me how they were misguided or their parents didn't know, or they thought that that was the only way. So many so many kids selling themselves short. So many students graduating college with a crippling amount of student loan debt who went to HBCUs, right? Let's just keep it real. HBCUs are expensive and you hit the nail on the head with that, you know, but a lot of us don't know that you got to be strategic. And I'm talking about sixth, seventh, eighth grade. You know, you've got to position your child to be, you know, able to receive or to even know what opportunities exist before you start applying to schools their 12th grade year. It's cute to say my baby is going to Howard and all of us went to Howard, but it's not cute for your baby to graduate with $100,000 and a job that's only going to pay $40,000. So now their financial future is crushed before it even gets started. And so that's because I am that student. I didn't have parents who knew the game, so they couldn't tell me, sell me anything they didn't know. Um, And I didn't have a circle of influence to tap into. But how about this? I didn't know how to tap into it because I know I had a circle of influence in my church, you know, with my grandparents, friends who I know went to college. Um, So I am somebody who was sitting on an astronomical amount of student loan debt because I went to private HBCUs because there's a difference. There's levels to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so um yeah, I'm kicking some cans. I wish hindsight was 2020. And so I just want to be that voice of telling people not what I think, not what studies show and you know, but what I know in spirit and in truth because I've walked the walk. I've sat at the other side of the table from faculty to dean to financial aid counselor. I see us every day walking away, not knowing half of the battle and our majority counterparts knowing the game, playing it, not sharing it, telling or even selling it to us. And so for me, I was always very clear that while I'm at this PWI, I'm going to be soaking it all up because my people, they going to know. Because right. I'm gonna tell them. Right, right. Now, now, doesn't the math seem to be broken when you start to look at the fact that um, 
A lot of people are graduating with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yes. Um, sometimes people get jobs. Oftentimes they don't. Um, mm -hmm. And if they do get jobs, oftentimes it may be 50 grand or less. Um, mm -hmm. Then from there, if people are living on the coast. The coasts are extremely expensive where since someone has a degree, they feel like they have to live in a two or three thousand mm -hmm. dollar condo. Mm -hmm. They have to drive that BMW. And then you have to do everything socially. So the math seems to be a little bit broken as far as college education and what's being offered and what people are able to get afterwards. What are your what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. And it's something that I literally if when people ask me, like, what is the one issue that is like a thorn in your side that you would lose sleep on? And it is that. It is the fact that I feel like we don't run the return on investment calculators on the front end. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we move a lot with our heart and with our pride and what we think we should do because it's popular, right? And we don't take the time to be strategic on the front end about what makes the most sense financially and then on top of that being willing to sacrifice or take an L on the front end so that you don't have to on the back end right. um, and what I mean by that is you know a lot of times there are state HBCUs right we have a few of them in Georgia that are less expensive than your private HBCUs. Now, strategy would say, I know you want to be at Morehouse. I know you want to be at Spelman. But why don't you start somewhere? That could be a community college. That could be one of the state HBCUs. And then transfer so you can cut your debt in half. The other part of it is, you know, really taking high school as the time to create the roadmap to what schools am I targeting who absolutely would, would love to would give their right arm to have someone like me? Because there are plenty of schools that will love to diversify their portfolio, for lack of a better word, who, will, who, who would want you to come there and they would pay for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times we don't expand our net beyond our comfort zones because we don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so there are many different reasons that, but the main thing is that when you talk about even something as simple as apprenticeships for youth, we shouldn't be starting our college journey as a freshman then deciding upon who we want to be when we leave college right. we should have already been growing up with a sense of exactly who do I want to be what do I want to do what does it take to get there and what is the most economically feasible way to do that without bankrupting myself or my family right. and we all need to touch and agree on that 
Not everyone is going to be blessed with a trust fund. Not every family is going to be able to afford to take money out of their checks every month to establish some type of uh, college fund or plan or to even save religiously every month from the time their kid is born. But there are things that we can do to be proactive. And one of those things is looking at a state school, looking at a community college first, connecting majors that will provide you the lifestyle you want. There are so many people who don't even look at the career stats for their majors until their senior year of college. So they don't even realize that a social worker is going to graduate college making $30,000. They don't even know that until it's time to graduate and they've already racked up 90000 in student loan debt. Mm-hmm. But when you think about, you know, you have to understand what the occupation will provide you. What are you good at? And what's a realistic lifestyle that's going to come from this? And does this college that I'm about to flip this bill for, will it be the return on investment no matter, you know, what I make when I leave this institution? But the other thing is a lot of our kids, a lot of our students are in college and they don't even keep that same energy they had when they was in high school. Right. And so when you're in high school, you're banging it out, you're grinding, you, you trying to do everything and be everybody so that you can attract this top college. And then when we get to college, we forget why we're there. Right. Yes, socials are important and frats and sororities, but what about study abroad? What about shadowing professionals? What about talking to your faculty members and volunteering? What about being seen on campus? So we're missing opportunities because we're not present in the right manner when we get there and we focus a lot in our community about getting to college and not about moving through college in a manner that's strategic to position you to snag a career. When I was at the University of Georgia, no lie, my phone in my office rung very often from Fortune 500 companies asking me to tell them of students who would be a good fit for internships, paid internships. And those students that were getting those paid internships were students who left, they had a job before in December when they were graduating in May at your Target corporations, at your Merrill Lynch's, making seventy dollars and $80,000 with one degree. And there are people in our community with three degrees that don't make $70,000 a year. Sure. And so to me, it's a systematic thing. Yes, it's an injustice thing. Yes, you know, it's a leveling the playing field. Yes, but today in the present, the playing field is not leveled. All we can do is level our backyards. And with that, what we need to do is understand everything that goes into that process. Mm-hmm. And it's evolving. Mm-hmm. But again, I just, I know that because I am that student. I see those students every day in my position who don't know what they don't know. Right. And so that's why I'm here to tell you what you should know so that you can make sure that you do it. And you, again, Keep that same energy. <laughs> That's the biggest piece of advice that I tell my parents and my students. You you hustling and bustling through high school, please do the same thing in college with balance. Right. 
Now, when, when I look at our socials and I look at um, some of the, the demographics, we have 33% of our following is over 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Then on the opposite end, 5% of our following is under 18. Wow. So we're, but, right. Mm-hmm. So, so we're at one time, it used to be 90% between 18 to 34. So mm-hmm. we have two different demographics growing. So with that, I have, I have three different questions I want to ask you that you can probably okay. blend into one. Okay. The first one I want to ask is how can a student with limited knowledge and exposure know what to major in in college when they have only had limited exposure because they're only 18 or, you know, maybe sometimes 19 or 20. Also, how should stu- what should students do in high school to get ready for college and what can parents do early to start pre- preparing children for success in high school and college? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first question was how can a student with limited exposure, so we're beyond trying to band-aid it. At this point, we're a senior in high school. <laughs> we had limited exposure. What can we do? Okay. Well, or know, usually, or know what to major in. Oh, know what to major in. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I always say it's never too late. So at the at the moment that you realize that your exposure is limited, I want you to become a LinkedIn stalker. Yes, I said it. <laughs> Go on LinkedIn, find people in industries they have keywords so even if you think you want to do something utilize that keyword to find out the different types of people that come up the one biggest thing you'll find is that you may have someone that has the same job title as somebody else or the same profession as someone else Mm -hmm. and they have five different ways to get there And so that's one. The other thing is draw on your strengths. What are you good at? But guess what? That's cliche. Everybody's going to tell you, oh my God, it's easy. What are you good at? But I want you to consider the things that you're not good at. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when we stretch ourselves, that's where we find the magic. That's where we're able to build into and we find something great because you're not even thinking about what you're not good at because you're like, oh, I'm not good at that. But the one thing about a lot of us is that we become competitive when we're trying to prove ourselves right. right. And so that would be my advice. What are you good at? Yes. What do you like to do? What are you passionate about? If it's gaming, great. Because we are seeing so many generations Zers who now are looking at their parents saying, see, mom and dad, I told you there's nothing wrong with playing this video game, you know, but how do you hone into that in an academic major, right? And so you go to your target institution's website and you see what majors they have. Most colleges have their majors listed out And they have hyperlinks that tell you typically what those majors will provide you in the classroom. Taking it a step further, once you've identified your major or your area of interest, there's a great powerful tool that I talk to parents about all the time. And it's the occupational handbook. 
is through the Department of Labor. So when you go to the Department of Labor's website, an occupational handbook is on there, and it literally lists every occupational and career code known to man in the United States. There's thousands of them. They have hyperlinks that tell you not just how much the, the, the person makes in that profession, which all students want to know, not just the degree you need to have or what you need to major in. It tells you the economic outlook on that position. Will it become extinct? Is it growing? Is it on the fast track? It also gives you a day in the life of what does this person really do beyond the job description? Mm. Look at that. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. You know, it gives you videos, all these things. Because the one thing I hear a lot of with that group, that 18, that I'm about to graduate high school, nowadays, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but a lot of students want to be engineers. Engineer is the new, when I was in school, it was CSI because CSI, you know, was a popular show. So everybody wanted to do something in forensic. Mm -hmm. So now it's engineering and nursing. And the one thing about engineering is, there are like 15 different types of engineers. Some engineers only need a certificate from Atlanta Technical College or whatever your technical school is. And some of them require you to have a master's degree. But you need to identify, do you want to be a mechanical engineer or a software engineer? And what does that person do? And can you see yourselves in what you know you're good at, what you know you need to improve on? Can you see yourself thriving to do that And then you go back and look at the major to determine, are you going to be able to handle the curriculum? Because the one thing a lot of students don't realize is for engineering, it's very math and science heavy, Mm -hmm. but there are different types of maths that are involved in it. So I need my students to, you know, get their, to get their strategy hats on and look at exactly what I want to major in. And look at two or three of them and look at the curriculum, look at the coursework. And are you good at these things in high school now? And what do you need to work on? Um, Because that is key. You can want to be whatever you want to be, but if you can't cut the mustard in the curriculum and handle what will be involved in that major, or you don't even know will be involved in that major, how can you then truly say that it's what you want to do and it's a goal? Because the goal is an action. At this point, you're just dreaming about what you want to do. We want you to make those dreams actionable, deliverable, oriented, and a goal. That was excellent. That was excellent because you gave us something tangible. Yes. That what someone's good at, what someone's passionate about, and also go to look at that occupational handbook so you can get a real feel of mm-hmm. what something may lead to. That, that was great. I I appreciate it. You're welcome. Yes. And that's something that so many of our kids don't get because we don't often in our community, we are growing, we are educated people. Yes. But we have a lot of work to be done and our majority counterparts, their daddy's brother, sister, cousin owns a company that they can just go and walk into. You know, we're still on the rise to owning these major corporations and businesses. We're not there yet. So what we need to provide our students, the 18, the generation Zers, is some tangible outlooks and what they can actually see. And even within ourselves, you know, this is the one thing that my husband and I try to do. We try to make sure, because he's a physical therapist. And so every summer he takes on 
high school students and college students that haven't yet decided what they want to major in. They, they know they're good at science, but they don't necessarily want to be a doctor. You know, and in our community, we kind of we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit by only talking about the prestigious areas that students hear about, like engineer, doctor, pharmacist, nurse. But what about the thousands of others, the chiropractors, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, who all make six figures, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we as a, a group have to start, you know, reaching back into our middle schools, middle, not high, middle schools, and talking to principals and teachers and saying, I would love for one of your kids to come to my place of business to shadow me. Everything doesn't have to be an internship, you know, or something that is paid. Oftentimes the exposure of just sitting in a seat next to an attorney that looks like them is enough to light a fire. Definitely, definitely. Now you have a new book coming out. Mm Mm-hmm win it or do you have a new book coming up <laughs> yes i do august 1st friday oh. well, what was that yeah august 1st okay. um so that's in a couple of days so it's called parenting for college okay. real deal strategies to get admitted and graduate debt free mm. so this book is everything that you and i have been talking about this is the handbook the guide for our people it is the only book for college planning that has been written by someone of color who's not only been there, done that, worked it, played it, did it um, in the past decade. Mm-hmm. We've had some. You know, Tom Joyner has a book about financial aid and some other things. There are some other people that have books, but in this in the past decade, there have not been any. And when you do a hashtag of college planning or college resources, I guarantee you, you're going to be inundated with people who are not of color because that whole industry is dominated by the majority culture. Mm -hmm. And so this book is my baby. It is everything for me. And it's, it's the highest form of, doing it for the culture that I could have ever thought about doing because I wrap everything I've seen in my professional journey as, you know, as a faculty member, as an academic, as a researcher, as a leader in various types of institutions into one book that is truly a guide. It's a playbook for parents and students. Can you make sure you send us a link for that? Yes. I will be. Yes. I will be honored to. I sure will. I definitely will do that. Okay. Now, if you can, you give the listeners some scholarship tips if they're a parent or if they're a student on ways to find scholarships? Yes. So the best way to find scholarships that are like within your reach because I hear parents say, oh my God, this is so much. Mm-hmm. Look in your neighborhood. Look at the utility companies in your area. Look at the water companies, right? Look at the civic organizations, the Rotary Clubs, the Black fraternities and sororities in your circle. Any Fortune 500 company that might be housed in your state, 
So for us in Georgia, Coca-Cola and Chick-fil-A, homegrown right here. They offer tons of scholarships to students. And so oftentimes the ones that are overlooked are your local banks. You know, we have a black owned bank here. They provide scholarships, your credit unions start there. Um, That's a, a big tip. And then be very mindful about casting your net to those that are specific to your goals because when you're writing those scholarship essays you're gonna have to talk about your personal story your and your connection to your major and where you want to go to college so you want to apply to scholarships that might be tailored to your interest in the type of school you want to go um to the type of major you seek your passions you know, that's good. And then another tip, do not forget community service. There's an article that just came out this week with, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken, but it talks about the overlooked aspect of college and that is of college admissions and scholarships and that is community service. I can tell you so many students of color do hundreds of hours of community services but they don't document it (laughs) they don't know that there is a whole public service award that is given at the federal level um through the united states um at the federal level and i'll send that link to you um and it's the public service um award that's given to students that have exuded you know hundreds of hours of community service um And that would be my tip. Always, always, always have a compelling story that you can share, but one that leads into talking about how you overcame an obstacle in a world where everybody is special. We live in a world where I haven't met so many students in my life that have 4.0s and 3.9s and 8s and all this other stuff and there's so many students who are from single parent homes and my mama has a GED and you know so again in a world where everybody is special no one is special so you have to separate yourself by having something compelling and flipping that story to one that will be interesting to the reader right Mm -hmm. Um, and again you know, if you wasn't, if you didn't grow up with a father, instead of taking a stance of, you know, I didn't grow up with a father, so I missed so many opportunities. I had a student um, in my course this summer that we flipped it to talk about how not having a father was motivating to be a committed member of society and to always be, you know, um, somebody who cares about others and that's passionate. And so you have to find your voice and your story, and you have to keep in mind who's reading it, and it's not Dr. O'Coley. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> it's right. mainstream America. Exactly. Uh, so, keep that in mind. Right. Dr. O'Coley, you've given us a lot of actionable things that that we can use, that uh, potential students can use, that um, students that are in college can use, people that are planning on having kids go to college can use. We really appreciate that. Um, what question did you want to answer that I didn't ask? Hmm. 
I think I really feel like you we 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 covered so much ground. I'm like in awe because like I am not a woman that's limited on words. I always got a question. <laughs> um, but no, I think we pretty much covered it all. I think the one thing that I want to express because I see this a lot um, with our people, especially those of us that live in a lot of urban areas there's a focus there's an article that just came out today and it's floating all over the internet about how wealthy families are pretty much manipulating the financial aid systems to ensure that their students are eligible for financial aid so they're transferring their guardianship they are changing jobs they're doing all these things when their kid gets to the ninth and 10th grade and so what it's doing is of course is limiting the aid for those of us who actually need it and so what i want to share and say in this moment while i have this audience is i feel like we have become very overly consumed with the finance the the scholarship race of sports or academics my kid has to get a scholarship I have to spend countless hours finding all this information that we are missing the mark we've also become very you know um, overly concerned about where we live you know almost to our detriment of you know, living in areas that we may not be able to afford because, you know, oftentimes the houses that are in the top school district are those that are very expensive. And we know that that is by design. You know the politics of that, right? And so we sometimes beat ourselves up that we can't live in the north side of town, for example, because that's where all the great schools are, right? The 10 schools. Or we beat ourselves up because we can't write a check to the best private school in our state or in our district. But in doing that, we miss the countless opportunities to find other strategies to make things happen for our students. And to say job shadowing isn't important, it is, because you're making connections with people who can potentially write a check for your kid. You know, to say that not taking advanced placement courses is not important is also kind of shooting yourself in the foot because a lot of highly selective institutions, they only scale off the top of students who've taken advanced placement and IB courses. You know, there are people who don't understand what dual enrollment is and how that can take away some of the core classes you need to take as a student going to college. And so your student can enter college with their first year already done. And so now you don't have to figure out how to pay for four years of college. You only have to figure out how to pay for three. You know how a lot of states have scholarships for residents and how it's okay to want your kid to go off and go out of state. But sometimes it's best for them to stay put because I know in the state of Georgia, our state scholarship at some institutions will cover up to 80% of tuition. Wow. And, and, and how we need to let our babies explore out of state 
and explore Ivy Leagues and apply to them because just as bad as you think that they won't be able to get in, they're waiting and tapping their fingers on when are we going to get some more students of color from some different backgrounds who want to change the world, who are going to be the next trailblazer. They're looking for those type of students, sometimes even above the student that has a 4.0. They're looking for people. And so a lot of your private institutions, you know, from all over the country are looking for us to give us money to help your student to match them most ivy leagues have a financial matching system where if you get in they're going to make sure your kid has the money that they need so that they're not burdened by the cost of college i know for example harvard university has a hundred thousand dollar rule where basically if your family makes less than that amount of money then you automatically qualify for need-based aid and so there are so many strategies that go beyond our limited level of understanding. But we have to be open and listening to professionals like myself and other guidance counselors and other college you know, administrators who are there to help. And in my last tip, do not be afraid to reach out to a college and ask questions. If your kid wants to go to Howard, call somebody up at Howard and ask questions your guidance counselor is not going to know everything i don't care if she went to howard she went to howard 20 years ago or five years ago just like all systems things change in higher ed every day but we have to have to have to be very strategic know our options and be willing to find them out ahead of the game and i'm passionate about it because it's something that is so simple yet we leave so many things on the table that can change our students' lives, their financial futures today, really. Definitely. I think we can end it with that. <laughs> yeah, we could. <laughs> I, I'm giving it all up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we appreciate that. We appreciate your passion. We appreciate your insight. We appreciate your knowledge. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your attention. Um. Mm -hmm. You know what? Let's not end it on that. I want to go selfish a little bit, if you don't. <laughs> Get selfish. <laughs> I'm going to go selfish. What do you like about HBCU grad? I love that. First of all, it's amazing that you have the diversity and people that follow you. I like that you all have taken the 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 camaraderie that the the pride because you know we have our pro, you know we have our battles online of the real hu and the, mm. the you know and mm -hmm. the all of this and that but i love that you have you're meeting people where they are every day you know on a social platform and you're inspiring them by showing them examples of people like them right who have gone on to do amazing things that they once thought were insurmountable. And you're showing that. And I just, I just love that because even for me, social media is not my strong suit and I kick and scream, Oh my God, I hate social media, you know, and podcasts. Oh my God. But that's where we are. That's where we are. And you can't be the change if you don't understand where we are and get there. 
Right. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. What can we do better? Nothing. <laughs> oh no! Nothing. Well, let me tell you what y'all can do better. Let me let me let me be selfish for a minute. I'm gonna need you to talk about Fisk more. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm tired of Howard and Hampton and Morehouse and Feldman taking up the HBCU HBCU airwaves. Now there are hundreds of others of us from other schools. Now we need y'all to spread it and share it. <laughs> All right. We got. We got. Oh, and FAMU, because you do a lot about FAMU, and I guess FAMU is great and everything. But can you talk about some other people too? <laughs> Okay, we'll, we'll definitely be kind to them. <laughs> really appreciate that. Before we go, Dr. O'Coley, we, we we're going to give you a chance to ask the question of the day. The question of the day can be anything. It can be uh, what challenges are you facing? Uh, what are you curious about? It can be something to give you insight about what you're doing, about your book. You can ask any question, and it can get to a lot of people, and you can get some insights or just have a little fun with it so you get a chance to ask the question of the day. Really? So what should I say? Give me some help. What do you think? I'm going to tag into you. You're going to follow me for an hour. <laughs> I, I would go selfish. I would go something about the book. How do people buy? How do they consume? Do they want to read a book in this regular form? Do they want to read it on Kindle? What type of things they want to read about? Um, and that's what I would go with. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Okay. What format would you like to receive the book in what would be best okay i'm old school so i'm gonna say paperback (laughs) right right sounds good well thanks dr o'coley we really appreciate all the insights you gave us and um make sure you also send us the link so we can so we can link this up and uh, give people the uh way to buy the book and and support you because you've given us a lot of jewels today You are so welcome, and I thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. I am so proud to be, you know, on this call with you all, on this podcast, and I'm, every day, I just become more and more and more, it becomes more and more clear as to why HBCU was the only way for me. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, and I'll be sure to um, send you all the link to the book. And again, keep doing what you're doing. You really are inspiring so many to choose HBCUs. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. O'Coley. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm always thinking about different ways to bring you guys value. And I'm fascinated with sometimes how you can put little money out and get a lot of value back and in this case if you pick up Dr. O'Coley's book and maybe spend 10, 15, 25 dollars if you can get one actionable item back it can be well worth your investment. I have not read the book so I can't speak on the content but if you do pick up the book uh, I think it can bring you some value if you can just get one thing so uh, I know it would help Uh, Dr. O'Coley and she would be appreciative if you do pick up the book so if you pick up the book we appreciate it and then you also can help a fellow HBCU grad again thank you for listening please share the podcast please rate us on iTunes and tweet us at HBCU grad as well and let us know um, how we're doing on the podcast thank you have a good day